If you guys have your Bibles, go over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Before we begin, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. It says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last week, we only looked at the first four verses of this chapter. And you might remember that uh, we were setting up a larger argument that Paul is making that starts from verse 1 and ends where we just read in verse 11. And what Paul is trying to do in this argument is explain how important it is to be unified. If you believe the gospel... You should want to have and should be working towards unity with other believers. There's a really important reason why. And that's because, as Philippians has been explaining to us, we need to show off the glory of the gospel. The gospel is a glorious thing. It is the greatest message in the whole world. And that should make our community look a certain way. Uh, One of the ways that Paul said this in verse 12 is he said, I want to advance the gospel. I want more people to know the gospel, and I want people who already know the gospel to love it more. And in order to do that, we need to be partners in the gospel. That's chapter 1, verse 5. And we need to be partakers of grace together, chapter 1, verse 7. Or if you want to look back at um, what we explained was our thesis verse for the book of Philippians, In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, so just before chapter 2, in that long sentence, Paul said at one point that the church he desires, the church in Philippi, to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, which is like struggling, struggling side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the whole point is people who know and love the gospel should be struggling, working hard to show how beautiful the gospel is. But if they're struggling with each other, if all of their energy is in fighting each other or being bitter with one another, then the gospel is not going to look very 
glorious. And so Paul begins an argument. And we already looked at part of it in verses 1 to 4. And it starts by saying this. The gospel needs to control your mindset. That's verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, he talks about all of these gospel truths. We have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort from love. We have the same spirit in which we get to participate in. We have affection. We have sympathy. We have all these things. And therefore, verse 2, we should be united. We should love one another. We should have the same mindset. We should think the same way. And the point Paul was making isn't that we believe all of the same things. That's true. We all believe the gospel. But it's the way we think. And he explains that in verses 3 and 4. He says the way we should think is in humility. The gospel should humble me. And he explains what that means. It means to count others more significant than myself and to look to other people's interests. True unity comes from humility. And humility means determined in your mind to not just want to grow in Christ yourself, but to desperately and determinedly want other people to grow in Christ. That's what Paul has been arguing. The way you could sum up all of that is by just saying gospel unity comes from gospel humility. Gospel unity comes from gospel humility. But everything we've covered so far in verses 1 to 4, that's not the full argument. Because then Paul continues speaking in verse 5 to 11, and he begins by saying, have this mind among yourselves. That mind is the same word he used for being of the same mind and having one mind which means we're in the same argument here. And what he wants to do is explain to you that if you really want unity, which means if you really want humility, you can't just command someone to do that. You can't just say, just do it because it's the right thing to do. Most of us need more motivation than that. And Paul knows that. And so what he does is he doesn't just give us a command. He gives us an example. And he gives us a second part of this argument that is so essential, which is this, that we learn gospel humility from Christ's example. From Christ's example. When we look at what Christ has done, you will want to be humble like Christ was. And that actually results in one of the most amazing passages in the whole New Testament. And the reason we need this kind of example if we want to grow in humility is because humility is hard. Humility is hard. Paul knows that. If you look at what he said in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, he even explained that sometimes I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, Paul isn't just saying he's bipolar. He's not just saying he never trusts himself or he doesn't think Christ is changing him. He's just saying, even though I'm in Christ and I have new life in Christ, I'm still a sinner. And what it means to be a sinner is to be selfish. That's why humility is hard, because every single one of us, from the moment we're born, we feel responsibility only to ourselves, and we feel like only we want pleasure and comfort for ourselves. Every single one of us is in the same place. And even after becoming a Christian, you still have to work on this. But the reality is that Paul gives you a really good path to be able to grow in this. This is very possible. And not only that, it's important. It's important. Because unity is important. 
And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to be a good coach. And he's actually going to do that by pointing to a better coach. If you've ever had a good coach, you know a good coach isn't necessarily the person who just screams in your face and tells you to listen to me and do everything I tell you to do. A good coach is someone who you know was both a good player and can explain to you from their example, both from experience and from study, what it means to be a good player. And what Paul is going to do is point at Christ and say, if you want to know how to do this and to know how good it is to do this and all the assurance you can have in doing this, becoming humble, then you need to look at Christ. Now, before we get into this text, let me tell you something really, really important. In verses 5 to 11, as Paul describes Christ, this is most likely not something Paul actually wrote himself. A lot of evidence leads us to believe that Paul actually quotes a hymn. That verses 5 to 11 is actually a hymn. And some people in new Bible translations that they have, they actually space it out. Like if you go, for example, in my book here, you can see that all the lines are close together, uh, like in a letter. But if I go over here to the book of Psalms, see how they're parceled out? See how they're indented? That's because this is a psalm, which is a song. That's kind of how we know it's a song, kind of like song lyrics work that way. They, we have them separated by other lines. A lot of Bible translations have that to point out the fact that this may have been an ancient Christian hymn. It most likely was. And I, I'm telling you that not just as like an interesting tidbit of information, but it's important because it means something about the kind of language that Paul uses to talk about Christ. What Paul is trying to do in this section is he's not just trying to give you a doctrinal statement about Christ. Now, he will say some of the most important doctrinal things that we need to know about Christ. But he says them in a way, by quoting a hymn, to make you love the beauty of it. That's the point. So let me give you an example. For um, Let's say I wanted to explain to you how the death of Christ is wonderful. I could just say Christ died for you. But what, and, you know, and maybe I'll explain all the ways that that makes sense. But what if I want to highlight the beauty of that? Well, I could pick a song. So, for example, one song that highlights the beauty of Christ is a song called There is a Fountain. Raise your hand if you've heard that song before, There is a Fountain. So you probably know the lyrics. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. If you know what Christ has done for us, beautiful song. Imagine you don't know and you hear that song. It, it sounds like Christians want to jump into a fountain of blood because Jesus bled himself dry and we're bathing in that blood. That's a weird, weird song if you don't understand that. But if you do understand it, you understand what it is. It's talking about everything Jesus went through that we would be saved. And the reason I say that is because you could read this section and you could say, Paul, why couldn't you just said some more clear statements? Why couldn't you just been more direct in the language that you use so we know exactly what Christ is and who he is and what he did? Well, the reason is because he's not trying to be as specific as he's trying to be poetic. Because he wants you not just to understand who Christ is and what he did. 
He wants you to be in amazement. Amazement over who Christ is. An amazement over what he's done. Paul is using poetic language over specific language because specific language is used to preserve truth like in catechisms and doctrinal statements. But poetic language is for those who know the truths but want to present them as beautiful as they are. You'll get a little bit what I mean when you go through this um, text with me. But what you need to understand as we begin is this. What is the beauty that Paul is trying to highlight? Paul is trying to highlight the beauty of Christ's humility. Looking at how humbled Christ was. What Christ was willing to do to save us is beautiful. And it should change you. And Paul's going to explain that in an argument that you could divide into three parts. And it's very, very simple, this argument. Number one, who Jesus is. Number two, what Jesus did. And number three, why Jesus did it. Very simple argument. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why Jesus did it. And next week, we're actually going to be in the same text, and we'll cover this a little bit more doctrinally, because I think that really helps to have assurance uh, that the Bible is telling us the truth. But for now, we're just going to deal with the text exactly as Paul meant it to be, which is an example for us. So let's do that. Let's do the first part, which is who Jesus is. And as soon as we get to verse 5 and 6, Paul begins with a bang. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He begins with one of the most amazing and essential Christian truths that there is. A lot of the New Testament talks about this. Romans chapter 9 verse 5, it says that Jesus is God over all and blessed forever. And of course, many of you guys know the opening prologue to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is this Word? Verse 14. The Word became flesh. It's Jesus who is God. Jesus who, according to verse 18, reveals God, the one who makes God truly known. But when you actually read it here in verse 6, Paul explains that Jesus is God in a different way. He doesn't actually say Jesus is God. He says Jesus was in the form of God. Jesus was in the form of God. So this is what I mean by saying, Paul, why couldn't you have been more clear? Why did you say Jesus was in the form of God when you could have just said Jesus was God? It's a good question to ask. And again, poetic language. So, for example, form feels weird to us because when we think form, we think, for example, Play-Doh. So let's say if I put a big piece of Play-Doh right here and I gave two little nubs over here and one big ball on his head and then two tiny nubs and I put it in front of you and I said, what is this? What would you say? It's a person, right? I heard someone say stick person, unless he said I did a terrible job illustrating this. So I, let's say I film, made a person out of a piece of Play-Doh. I, I formed it. But... It, do any of you guys think this is a living, breathing person? No, no, you don't, because that's how we use the word form. So for us, it might seem unspecific, but that's not exactly what that verb gets at. The word is morphe, which isn't just form as in forming something. It's dealing with all of the parts of something. 
So the way Paul is saying this poetically is he's trying to explain that Jesus had all that is in God. All the parts you need, if if you could somehow make a puzzle that made God, all of the bits and pieces, everything that it means to be God, that's in Jesus. It's a poetic way to talk about the complete godness of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be really important moving forward because he's saying Jesus had everything as God. Not just everything it literally means to be God, but he had everything. Jesus lived in perfection. Everything was good before anything existed. Jesus was fine. The doctrinal way that you could say this is there's a doctrine called aseity, which is basically a really nerdy way to say Jesus didn't create creation with Father and Spirit because he was bored. He didn't need anything. Jesus had everything because Jesus was God. And he begins to explain what that means because in verse 6 he begins to say as well, Jesus had equality with God. Which isn't trying to say that Jesus was one God and there was another God. It's saying that Jesus was with Father and Spirit. Our God is Trinity. And Jesus is one of these people in the Trinity. That's how he experiences his godness, you could say. Jesus ruled over creation with Father and Spirit together as one. Perfect love and fellowship. You know why that's important, right? Because this is a section on unity. And what did Jesus have? Perfect unity. Perfect fellowship. Perfect love. And that's why he uses this word in the form of God and equality with God. He's trying to highlight Jesus was in a perfect place before everything changed. Before man determined to sin against God. But before we get this, let me say this. That C.H. Spurgeon, famous pastor, many of you know, said this. You and I can have no idea how high an honor it is to be equal with God. Our highest thoughts cannot comprehend the height from which he came. The height from which he came is inconceivable above our highest thoughts. One thing that's important about being a Christian is even though you need to intellectually grasp who Jesus is, that Jesus is God, you can never fully comprehend it. Ever. It is a truth too big, too beautiful to fully wrap your mind around. Because God is infinite. You need to be amazed by that. Or you're never going to understand how amazing the next part of Paul's argument is. Number one, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Number two, what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? We're immediately told that Jesus left his previous existence. Verse 6. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. This hymn is explaining that Jesus, who is the creator and ruler of all creation, came into creation. It says he did not grasp, which means he didn't hold on to the honors and privileges he had as God. 
Instead, he emptied himself. Some of your Bible translations say he made himself nothing. Again, poetic language, because it seems like it's saying Jesus decided to stop being God. He left Godhood behind. He's not God anymore. But that's not true. That's not what this hymn is trying to explain. What it's trying to say is this. Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's what the NIV says. Something to be used to his own advantages. This is what he's saying. Jesus had all the rights and privileges of ruling over creation, and he put them aside for 33 years. He put them aside when he came to earth. It's called the incarnation. Jesus coming into creation, coming into time, coming into weakness, coming into something so much less than he had in heaven for eternity. He emptied himself of his right to rule and reign. He left behind the experience of perfect love, everlasting and unending. He emptied himself. And ironically, the way he emptied himself is actually adding to himself. Talk about ironic. It wasn't that he left everything behind by getting rid of his godhood. It's that he left godhood behind by adding something. And Paul explains three things he added. Three things Jesus became. Number one, Jesus became a servant. Look at verse seven. He took the form of a servant. Notice he uses that word form again. Jesus had everything that it means to be God, and instead he took on everything it means to be a servant. Jesus, who owned all honor and worship over all creation, came into creation to serve creation. To love creation is more important than himself, even though he was infinitely more important than anything in creation. He took off his rule as creator, took on the role of serving creatures. That's what Jesus did. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, we have an Old Testament prophecy that says, when the Messiah comes, he will have no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus as God, who is perfectly beautiful and perfectly majestic, came as a servant who has what? No majesty, no beauty. Why? Because he didn't want to come to demonstrate his kingship. Instead, he came to look to our interests. Verse 3. He looked to our interests. He came in loving service. How did he do that? Well, number two, Jesus became a human. Jesus became a human. Verse 7, it says he was born in the likeness of men. And verse 8 says he was found in human form. See the word form again? It means everything that it means to be a human, Jesus had. Which clarifies the first point, right? He had the appearance of man. That sounds like he just looked like a person, but he wasn't truly. But the word in verse 8, found in human form, means everything it means to be a human, Jesus had. Now listen, humans are valuable. Humans do matter. You matter. I matter. 
We're made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. In Psalm 8, the psalmist says that man is a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. And that's true. But humanity is infinitely less than Godhood. Infinitely less. God says in Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should repent. God rules in perfect love and wisdom. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. That doesn't describe being a human. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Remember those verses because they're highlighting what Jesus left behind when he became man. The highest thoughts in the universe, the most unsearchable of ways, all understanding when he became human. This is absolutely not talking about that Jesus came into being a sinner. As you'll understand reading the New Testament and reading the Gospels, the one part of what it means to be human from our perspective, which is being a sinner, that was the one thing Jesus did not have. But everything else, Jesus demonstrated what it actually means to be a perfect human. But in order to do that, he left behind the demonstration of his glory as God. And he did that for a very specific reason, because number three, Jesus came to become a criminal. To become a criminal. He became a servant and he became human because he needed to become a criminal. Verse eight, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is important. Jesus did not just come to die. He came to allow himself to be killed by the people he came to save. Because ordinary people don't die on a cross. The worst criminals in the Roman Empire die on a cross. The worst. And that was a fact not lost on people who lived in a Roman colony. We have part of this story recorded for us in Matthew chapter 26. Where Jesus was before the Jewish high priests, having never sinned, having never fallen short of the glory of God. And yet the supposed representatives of God, the Jewish people, question Jesus. Verse 63 in Matthew 26 says, The high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Which is saying, yes, I am. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus tells the truth. And how does the high priest respond? It says, then the high priest tore his robes, which is a demonstration of uncontrollable anger. And he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered him. He deserves death. 
And then they spit on his face and they struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Jesus chose to endure that when he set aside his deity. Christ humbled himself by allowing himself to be treated infinitely less than he deserved. This is where you have to see why Paul is giving us this picture when he's talking about the importance of becoming humble. Jesus humbled himself. Just ask yourself the question, what is humility? What is Christ showing me about humility? What is so beautiful about humility as we see it in Christ? Humility means giving up your rights or privileges to prefer someone else. Humility is giving up your rights and privileges to prefer someone else. And there's no better example of that than Jesus Christ. He traded being a king to be a servant. He traded infinity for humanity. He traded perfect Trinitarian love for an unfair trial at the hands of evil men. The same people he came to save. The one who created justice allowed himself to be unjustly accused, spit on, beaten, mocked and killed in the most painful circumstance imaginable, both physically and spiritually, because he experienced separation from the perfect love of the Father and Spirit that he had known for eternity, even as he had nails struck into his physical hands and died. God humbled himself by being humiliated beyond imagination. And the question you've got to ask is why? Why did he do that? Because if you talk to a Muslim, that's the most offensive thing you could possibly hear. If you talk to an atheist, they will say this is divine child abuse. You've got to know why. Why did Jesus do it? Jesus is God. That's who Jesus is. What did Jesus do? He became a servant, a human, and a criminal. Why did he do it? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to do what was necessary to save sinners. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to do what was necessary, keyword necessary, to save sinners. Man cannot save himself. But if God determines to become man, become a servant, become a criminal, he can allow sinners to become subjects again. That's why Jesus became obedient to the point of death. He may die once and rise again to give hope to even sinners that not by through what they do, but through believing in what Christ has already done, they can live forever with God through union with himself. In Luke chapter 24, at the end of the Gospel of Luke that we're studying together, it says that after Jesus died, there were two disciples who were going to a village called Emmaus. And Jesus himself drew near and went with them and their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It's one of the most interesting stories I'd say in the whole Bible. Jesus has died and he shows up talking to these two disciples and they have no idea who he is. They just think he's some guy. 
And through this opportunity, Jesus begins a conversation with them and he asks them, what's the scuttlebutt? What's happened? What's the news? And they say, well, there's this guy named Jesus. Haven't you heard of him? And he says, no, I haven't heard of him. And he's the guy. He says, why don't you tell me about him? And they explain. He is someone who is mighty in word and deed before God and all of the people. But according to these disciples, unexpectedly, he was killed. They say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And they see, even though there were some women who recently had a vision of angels and said Jesus was alive, they sent other people to go and check it out and they didn't find anything. So maybe they were lying. It's bad enough that they didn't believe it when Jesus was proving through angelic beings that he did things for a reason, being the sovereign creator and God of the whole universe and having a plan from the very beginning of time to save sinners. It's bad enough that when Jesus was working out that plan after having explained it for years and years and years, his own disciples were surprised when he died. And Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus' death wasn't an accident. He didn't come in human form to serve human beings only to accidentally die on the cross. It was absolutely necessary. Why? According to Romans chapter 5 verse 11, Jesus did it so we could rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Next week we'll go into more details about all the specifics about why he needed to come as a human, why this was how he needed to serve us, why it was that he needed to be counted as a criminal. But the only thing right now that's important to say is that, number one, it was necessary. Everything you needed to do, Jesus did for you because you couldn't do it. And the death you deserved to die, Jesus died instead so that you would die once and live forever with him. And to explain that this is a victorious thing and not just an accidental thing. The song ends in verses 9 to 11 by saying, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus had everything, and he gave up everything. And now he's ruling over everything. Are you starting to click? Are you starting to understand what Jesus did and why it's important and why he is this perfect model of what he's talking about. 
Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. You know, when you see that, if you want to know how to respond properly, there's a lot of things that you should be thinking. You should think, I want to worship Jesus. I want to be more hopeful than I am. I don't want to be cynical. I want to have a kind of joy because I'm in Christ. I want to be thankful. And all of these things are true. But there is particularly one thing on Paul's mind if you want to know how to respond appropriately to how joyful and amazing this reality is that Jesus allowed himself as the creator of the universe to be killed by his creation that we would live with God forever. And it's this, be humble. What are you willing to set aside to serve others when Jesus Christ set aside everything to serve you? Verse three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Verse five, because this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. This is how we must think. When I see what Christ gave up for me, I should be able to give up anything for Christ in order to serve my fellow Christians. No service is too humbling because Christ himself humbled himself infinitely more. No rejection by other people can stop my joy because Christ hasn't rejected me. No task he gives me should feel too difficult because it is infinitely easier than what Christ had to do for me. Christ is my strength, Christ is my example, and Christ is my motivation to serve others selflessly and to joyfully remove myself as the center of my own life. I like the way Spurgeon said it. Here in the immeasurable distance between the heaven of Jesus' glory and the shame of his death is room for our gratitude. That's a good word. Here are three really quick ways of growing in humility. If you see this example and you see Christ gave up way more than I could ever give up for him, I want to give up anything for Jesus. Here's three things that you can do really quickly. Number one, hate your sin and love your Savior. Hate sin, love Christ. Jesus died for our sin and gave us the ability to say no to sin. Exercise that power. Wake up in the morning and resolve yourself to die for your sins because as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. If you struggle with sin, you're still a Christian, okay? But just know the more you indulge your sin, the less you will love Christ. And the more you love Christ, the more you will hate your sin. Psalm 97 verse 10. Oh, you who love Yahweh, hate evil. Hate evil. You must especially hate the sin that separates you from other Christians. That's the point. Hate the sin that separates you from other Christians, which is technically all of it. J.C. Raw once said, The pleasures that the worldly man gets by his ways are hollow, unreal, and unsatisfying. Which is why we sin, right? We think it's satisfying. We think it gives us pleasure. We think it's real. It's nothing. 
They are like the fire of thorns. They flash and crack for a few minutes and then they are quenched forever. But the happiness that Christ gives us to his people is something solid, lasting, and substantial. It is not dependent on health or circumstances and it never leaves a man even in death. It ends in a crown of glory that never fades away. You know why Jesus served us? For the joy set before him. Jesus was sinless because every single moment of every single day, he was making an infinite number of decisions to say, sin is terrible in light of the glory of God the Father. That is the model for our attitude. Jesus didn't sin because he had too much joy in the Father. And Jesus is showing you a pattern for joy in your own life. You know how you get joy? Be selfless. Trade your sin for selflessness. That's how you set joy before you. Number two, ignore yourself. Ignore yourself. Don't hate yourself. Don't devalue yourself. Just ignore yourself. Jesus said in John 13, verse 15, I've given you an example that you should also do as I have done. You know what Jesus' example was? He washed stinky, gross, dirty feet. That was the example of what the infinite God of the universe in perfect joy determined to do. Wash feet. That's our standard for service. Washing feet. You know why we don't wash feet? Because it's not really because they're too dirty or too stinky. That's not really why. It's because we think we're too good to wash feet. That's why. The God of the universe could come and wash feet. And so often we, don't, we think we're too good to wash feet. I like the way Spurgeon said this. He said, I heard some of you saying, I've been insulted and I have not been treated with proper respect. I have done excellent service and there's not a single paragraph in the newspaper about me. Oh, dear friend, your master humbled himself, and it seems to me that you are trying to exalt yourself. Truly, you're on the wrong track. If Christ went down, 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 it ill becomes us to always be seeking to go up, up, up. So if you are now in a place where you're not noticed, where there is little thought of you, be quite satisfied with it. That's a good word. I know we don't read the newspaper anymore, but I think we do care if we're tagged in a photo on Instagram or we're, we're part of the group text or we were or were not invited to the last hangout. I also think that we like to serve in the most noticeable ways. And I know that in my own heart as well. But I also know that there's certain things that we don't want to do and the real reason we don't want to do it is we think we're too good for it. That we are worth more than that service. And both of those attitudes stop the advance of the gospel and they ruin your joy in following Christ. Don't allow self-esteem to motivate your service. Don't allow your self-importance to get in the way of your service. Don't serve because you want to seem good or be included. Because none of those are going to give you the joy that they think you're going to give, that you think you're going to get. And that really leads to this third one. And this is maybe the most important one. So listen really closely. Rest in grace. Rest in grace. 
Sometimes Christians serve because they think Christ will only love me if I serve. That's not true. That's not true. Because Romans chapter 5 says when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe even a righteous person will jump in front of a car for us if they think we've saved a thousand orphans. But while I had murdered a thousand orphans, Jesus jumped in front of the car for me. That's Romans 5. When you were at your worst, Christ died for you because he loved you. Don't allow trying to get more of the love of Christ to motivate your service. Rest in his grace. Humility, like all parts of Christian character, only comes when you're enjoying union in Christ. The reason you can have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, is because if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're already in Christ Jesus. And you're in Christ Jesus because Jesus loved you first, even before you fully realized it. So realize it. Realize that your sin is not too much for his grace. You are in Christ permanently if you believe in him. So follow his example. And as it gets difficult, he will not leave you Neither will he forsake you, and he will change you. So when service gets hard, or if humility seems impossible, just look at Christ. Just look at Christ. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3 explains that you will be changed into his image. As we close, I think it's really good to do what Paul did and just look at him. Because sometimes when it's hard to look at Christ, or if you're reading parts of the Bible that seem difficult to truly understand Christ. It's good to see many other fellow Christians through history who have written beautiful things about Christ to remind you of the beauty of Christ. One of them is one of my favorite hymns called Here is Love. And lines are this. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. If the king of the universe died for me, how should I respond? Who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he shall never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. That English is too fanciful for you. The other hymn is a more modern one called All Praise to Him by Sovereign Grace, which I believe this is verse 2. All praise to him whose love is seen in Christ the Son, the servant king, who left behind his glorious throne to pay the ransom for his own. All praise to him who humbly came to bear our sorrow, sin, and shame, who lived to die, who died to rise, the all-sufficient sacrifice. Humility's hard, but it's not so hard if you're looking at Christ. Or as J.C. Ralph said it, it may cost much to be a true Christian and a consistent holy man, but it pays. But it pays. Let's pray. Father, you are good and do good. And we know that because we know Jesus Christ. Father, I pray you would give us a greater vision of your son. Father, you are so much better than we deserve. You are infinitely greater than the treatment that we gave you. 
when we killed you on the cross, when we denied you every day of our lives. Father, I pray you would give us a vision of Christ that we might see that the world means nothing if it means forfeiting our souls. Father, we want to serve you. We want to love you. We want to be humble so that we might be united, but that will be impossible if we don't see you, if we don't get you. Father, let us see you through the perfection of your son so that we might walk like him, talk like him, and serve like him. And that your church would truly reflect the glory of your gospel. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.